Hello and welcome to my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset, the evolution of the Irish from biblical times. And this is episode number 15, entitled Henry Grattan, Wolf Tone and the Society of United Irishmen, 1791. May I remind you that you can become a patron of these podcasts by visiting www.landofthegoldensunset.podbean.com. In any event, please continue to follow and like. Meanwhile, America, on issues almost identical to Ireland, had taken up arms in battle and, aided by France, was engaging England in a deadly struggle. Towards the end of the year 1779, large forces of English troops left Ireland for the war in America, so that no regular troops could be spared for local defence. The people of Belfast, being conscious of this danger, were the first to make a move by enrolling volunteer corps. The movement spread throughout the land of the Golden Sunset, and soon the Patriot Party in Parliament was surrounded by a volunteer army of 100,000 men. The nation by this time had become unanimous in its resolution to be free. Under the healing influence of this sentiment of patriotism, the gaping wound of wrongs began to close. Catholics, though still outside the pale of the Constitution, forgot all the griefs and wrongs and turned all their energies to aid the national movement. They bought the guns which the law forbade them to carry or have in their possession, and they gave them to their Protestant countrymen, telling them to go forward in the glorious work of liberating their common land. The trade from Ireland had been almost extinguished by repressive enactments passed by the English Parliament. But the Irish leaders were about to introduce moves which would place the destinies of Irish trade beyond the power of English jealousy and under a free and independent native legislator. On the 19th of April, 1780, Henry Grattan moved a resolution that no power on earth, save that of king, lords and commons of Ireland, has the right to make laws to bind this kingdom. The motion was unsuccessful. However, but for two years, the contest was pursued. Then suddenly, the news was received that the British armies had capitulated in North America, and a new power was born to give hope to the oppressed all over the world. It was England's day of humiliation and dismay, having lost America. April the 16th, 1782 was the date peremptorily fixed by Henry Grattan for moving the Declaration of Rights, which was the proximate cause of Ireland's short-lived prosperity and the remote one of its final overthrow and annexation. Grattan said towards the end of his proposal, a parliament of our own to make laws to bind the nation and in this right the very essence of our liberty exists a right which we, on the part of all the people of Ireland, do claim as their birthright, and which we cannot yield but with 
our lives. Within a month, London accepted and Ireland had won complete legislative independence and the old nation was exalted and restored. Henry Grattan, 1746 to 1820, was an Irish politician and lawyer, a member of the Anglo-Irish elite of Protestant background, who campaigned for legislative freedom from Britain for the Irish Parliament in the late 18th century. He was a member of the Irish Parliament from 1775 to 1801 and a member of Parliament from 1805 to 1820. He has been described as a superb orator and a romantic. With generous enthusiasm, he demanded that Ireland should be granted its rightful status, that of an independent nation, though he always insisted that Ireland would remain linked to Great Britain by a common crown and by sharing a common political tradition. Grattan opposed the Act of Union in 1800 that merged the Kingdoms of Ireland and Great Britain, but later sat as a member of the United Parliament in London. Henry Grattan died at his home in Portman Square on the 4th of June 1820 and was buried in Westminster Abbey, close to the tombs of Pitt and Fox. His statue is in the outer lobby of the Palace of Westminster. Sidney Smith said of Grattan soon after his death, No government ever dismayed him. The world could not bribe him. He thought only of Ireland, lived for no other object, dedicated to her his beautiful fancy, his elegant wit, his manly courage, and all the splendour of his astonishing eloquence. The building housing the Faculty of Law and Government at Dublin City University has been named in his honour. Grattan Bridge crossing the River Liffey between Parliament Street on the south side of Dublin and Capel on the north side is also named in his honour. It was with good reason that the National Party directed their energy to the question of parliamentary reform. The legislative body was, after all, returned by an antiquated electoral system, which was a farce on representation. Boroughs and seats were openly and literally owned by families and persons. The Patriotic Party wisely judged that with such a parliament, the retention of freedom would be precarious and the representation of the national will uncertain. And so the question of parliamentary reform was discussed with hostility and bitterness. The British minister, observing the mood, knew that he could never accomplish his treacherous designs, so began to move behind the scenes to outnumber the popular party. Thus began the work of deliberately destroying the Parliament of Ireland. Those who could be influenced, bought or corrupted, in any way were targeted. Those who remained true to honour and duty were insolently treated, insulted and assailed. Soon a malign opportunity presented itself for putting Ireland helplessly into their hands. The French Revolution burst onto the European stage. Everywhere its effects were felt. In July 1791, the French Revolution was celebrated with military pomp in Belfast by armed volunteers and townspeople. Side by side with the march of events was the revelation of England's treason against the final adjustment of Irish national rights and the exasperation, demeanour, language and action of the government 
in its avowed determination to conquer right by might. At the end of 1791, Theobald Wolftone, who had devoted himself to assisting the Catholics in their efforts for emancipation, visited Belfast, then a centre of democratic, liberal and republican opinions. He went there for the purpose of organising an association for the accomplishment of parliamentary reform and Catholic emancipation. This organisation, named the Society of United Irishmen, was established as a union of all Irishmen, irrespective of creed or class, in an open, legal and constitutional form. Wolf Tone, on his return to Dublin, pushed its operation there, and it soon embraced every man of note on the people's side in politics. Theobald Wolftone was born in Dublin on the 20th of June, 1763. His father, Peter Tone, was a coachmaker who had a farm near Salins in County Kildare and belonged to the Church of Ireland. His mother came from a Catholic merchant family who converted to Protestantism after Theobald was born. His maternal grandfather was captain of a vessel in the West India trade. Wolf Tone and his brother William initially planned to enlist as soldiers in the East India Company, but applied too late in the year, when no more ships would be sent out until the following spring. He entered Trinity College in 1781, when he was aged 18. He met and fell in love with Matilda Witherington, and they eloped when he was 22 and she was only 16 years he was called to the Irish Bar in 1789, having studied at the Middle Temple, London, and graduated in 1786. He drafted the manifesto for the first meeting of the Society of United Irishmen, which was held in Belfast on the 18th of October 1791. The Catholic Relief Act of 1793 disappointed him because Catholics were debarred from sitting in Parliament. In 1795, he took his family to Belfast in order to avoid arrest and thence to America. Having accompanied the French invasion to Loxwilly in October 1798, his ship, the Hoche, under Admiral Bompart, was engaged in battle. They encountered a British squadron at Buncrana on Loxwilly on the 12th of October 1798. Wolf Tone, on board the ship Hoche, refused Bompart's offer of escape in a frigate before the Battle of Tory Island, and was taken prisoner when the Hoche surrendered. Wolftone was brought ashore in Letterkenny port, and all French forces of the Hoche were taken to Lord Cavan's home in Letterkenny, where he was arrested and taken to Dublin to be charged. At his trial by court-martial in Dublin on the 8th of November 1798, Wolftone made a speech avowing his determined hostility to England and his intention, by frank and open war, to procure the separation of the countries, recognising that the court was certain to convict him. He asked that the court should adjudge me to die the death of a soldier and that I may be shot. However, his request to be shot was denied. On the 10th of November, 1798, he was found guilty and sentenced to be hanged on the 12th of November. Before this sentence was carried out, he was found dead and was buried in Bodenstown in November 1798.
Adam Smith, 1723 to 1790, argued that society does well when people act in their own interest, and this self-interest leads to social harmony rather than chaos. He came up with one of the most famous phrases in economics. He said, It's as if society is guided by an invisible hand. Smith's invisible hand works when decent people have the freedom to exchange goods with each other or to buy and sell things. One result of all this exchange is that people specialise in particular jobs and a division of labour emerges. Smith had a vision of a new economy that was then being born, one based on the division of labour and self-interest. The signs of a new society sprang up all over Europe. Factories were built and the owners bought the tools and machinery needed to make goods and paid wages to the workers who streamed into the expanding towns from the surrounding countryside. There they toiled alongside steam-powered machinery and were no longer ruled by the rising and setting of the sun over fields, but by the clocks and schedules of their employers. The changes were so profound that they later came to be called the Industrial Revolution. But the gross and naked tyranny of the government was used to push the leaders of the United Irishmen out of constitutional action. And very soon they got tired of the hopeless struggle. Some of them retired from public life. Others yielded to the conviction that outside the constitution the struggle might be fought. And this led to the United Irishmen becoming a north-bound secret society. Envoys passed between the United Irishmen and the French, and an armed struggle began to be contemplated, but the English government learned of this. Meanwhile, the society extended itself with great success. Nearly half a million able and determined men were enrolled, the majority of whom were armed. In early 1796, an Insurrection Act was passed, making the administration of an oath punishable by death. An English army of 50,000 men was subsequently increased to 80,000 and was let loose upon the country on the atrocious system of free quarters. Irresponsible power was conferred on the military officers and local magistrates. The yeomanry mainly composed of orangemen, were posted to the most Catholic districts, while the Irish regiments, suspected of sympathy with the population, were shipped to England in exchange for foreign troops. Free quarters was the obligation or imposition of having to provide free board and lodgings for troops, and meant that the wives and daughters of householders were exposed to every indignity brutality and outrage imaginable. Such was the tyranny of the English after the statement of Henry Grattan that we cannot yield but with our lives and Wolfe Tone's United Irishman that Francis Rawdon, 1754-1825, to Lord Moira, Lord Lieutenant of Ireland in 1805, 
giving testament as to the actions of the English government in the House of Lords, said, My lords, I have seen in Ireland the most absurd as well as the most disgusting tyranny that any nation ever groaned under. I have been a witness of it in many instances. I have seen it practised unchecked, and the effects that have resulted from it have been such as I have stated to your lordships. I have seen in that country a marked distinction between the English and the Irish. I have seen troops that have been sent there full of this prejudice, that every inhabitant of that kingdom is a rebel to the British government. The English government had sent an army into Ireland in preparation for a rebellion, made up of Welsh, Scottish and Hessian regiments, and between English and Irish militia, an army of 130,000 men prepared for the work, and in this way they goaded the people on to rebellion. The punishment of picketing was in practice. It had been previously abolished as being too inhumane, even for the treatment of savages. The victim was left hanging and supporting his own weight while standing on a sharp pointed stake. Lord Moira again goes on to say, he had known a man who, in order to extort a confession of a crime from him, was picketed until he actually fainted, and picketed a second time, until he fainted again, and again, as soon as he came to himself, picketed a third time, until he fainted once more, and all this on mere suspicion. As well as torture, men were taken and hung up until they were half dead, unless they made a confession of imputed guilt. The English yeomanry and the orange yeomanry violated the women, they killed the aged, they plundered the homes and set fire to the villages. Sir Ralph Abercrombie, 1734-1801 to When he arrived in Ireland as commander-in-chief of the English forces, declared that he was frightened and disgusted at the conduct of the soldiers and refused to take command of the forces. He issued a general order with these words, The very disgraceful frequency of great cruelties and crimes and the many complaints of the conduct of the troops in Ireland to be in a state of licentiousness that renders it formidable to everybody except the enemy. He then threw up his command in disgust and General Gerard Lake was sent as his replacement. In December 1796 Gerard Lake was appointed commander in Ulster and issued a proclamation ordering the surrender of all arms by the civil population, during which time he was untroubled by legal restraints or by his troops' violent actions. Historians have generally seen Lake as effective in disarming and crippling the society of United Irishmen, although his effectiveness has been questioned. Lake having succeeded Sir Ralph Abercrombie, as Commander-in-Chief of British Troops in Ireland in April 1798, turned his attention to Leinster, where public floggings and torture of suspected rebels became widespread and added to the general atmosphere of terror. Rather than cowing the province into submission, his crude methods probably contributed to the outbreak of insurrection in May 1798, Lake continued to deal harshly with opposition, 
and issued orders to take no prisoners during the rebellion. Gerard Lake was sent to oppose a French expedition of 1,000 troops which had landed at Killala Bay, County Mayo, on the 23rd of August. On the 29th of August, Lake arrived at Castle Bar with a force of 1,700 men and witnessed the rout of his troops under General Healy Hutchinson at the Battle of Castle Bar. Lake failed to rally his largely inexperienced troops and was forced to retreat to Tume. The speed of which retreat and abandonment of material led to the incident to become known as the races of Castlebar. Healy Hutchinson shouldered much of the blame, but it was accepted that Lake's troops were inexperienced and a head-on battle with the seasoned French force was probably to be avoided. However, rumours also abounded that Lake had been heavily drinking the night before the battle and was only woken with difficulty while the French were already attacking. He went on, however, to defeat the French at the Battle of Ballinamoke on the 8th of September. Henry Richard Vassal, 3rd Lord Holland, 1773-1840, in his memoirs, confirms those reports and goes on to say, Reverend William Dixon, Lord Bishop of Down and Connor, assured me that he had seen families returning from Mass assailed without provocation by troops and yeomanry, and their wives and daughters exposed to every species of indignity, brutality, and outrage. Sir John Moore was Major General and served in Ireland in 1798. He bears this out in his testimony and goes on to say, If I were an Irishman, I would be a rebel. General Sir William Napier, a soldier and historian, says, At the time, what manner of soldier were those fellows killing, burning and confiscating every man's property? The answer seems to be that all these provocations were deliberately contrived to bring about and goad them into rebellion. The Irish are a law-abiding people, or rather, a justice-loving people, for their contempt for the law becomes extreme when it is made the antithesis of justice. Nothing but terrible provocation could have driven such people into rebellion. The major economic change in Ireland in the 18th century was the large amount of infrastructural development. Toll roads, or turnpikes as they were called, were established by the Parliament of Ireland from 1734. And from 1756, the Grand Canal was built from Dublin towards the Shannon, the Ulster Canal in 1783 and the Royal Canal in 1790. The Money Bill dispute of 1753 revealed a tax surplus that was maintained until the 1790s. The Money Bill dispute of 1753-56 arose from the refusal of Henry Boyle an MP and Chancellor of the Exchequer of Ireland, to allow an Irish revenue surplus to be paid over to London. Boyle was dismissed by the Lord Lieutenant Lionel Crankfield Sackville, 1st Duke of Dorset, 1688-1765, and then appealed to public opinion as a defender of Irish interests. In 1755, William Cavendish, 3rd Duke of Devonshire, 1698 to 1755, the new Lord Lieutenant arranged a favourable compromise and Henry Boyle was reinstated and created 
Earl of Shannon. Coincidentally, Charles Sackville, second Duke of Dorset, married the Honourable Grace Boyle, daughter and heir of Richard Boyle, second Viscount Shannon, on the 30th of October, 1744. In Dublin, Dorset Street was named after Lionel Crankfield Sackville, first Duke of Dorset and Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, as was Sackville Street, which was later renamed O'Connell Street after Daniel O'Connell, and Sackville Place in Dublin still bears his name. Dorset served twice as Lord Lieutenant of Ireland from 1731 to 1737, and again from 1751 to 1755. In the 18th century, trade with Ireland was the most important branch of English overseas trade. Absentee landlords drew off some £800,000 per annum in farm rents in the early part of the century, rising to £1 million in an economy that amounted to about £4 million. Completely deforested for timber exports in the course of the 17th century, Irish estates turned to the export of salted beef and pork and butter and hard cheese through the port city of Cork, which supplied England, the Royal Navy and the sugar colonies of the West Indies. Regarding the deforestation of Ireland, which began with Henry VIII's Forest Act of 1543, a new charter of the forest enacted. This act is prompted by two factors. The first is the national requirement for shipping, brought on by the increase of colonisation led by Drake, Raleigh and Frobisher. The second was the disclosure of corruption in the English Forest Administration, the result of which is a shortage in native timber. This change in policy is to have a drastic and enduring effect on the Irish woodlands. And, furthermore, during her rule, Elizabeth I expressly orders the destruction of all woods in Ireland to deprive the Irish insurgents of shelter. The fact that England is to benefit from this isn't a mere afterthought. There were four major reasons for the destruction of the Irish forests during the 16th and 17th century. The removal of hideouts for rebels, a demand for shipbuilding timber, mainly oak, as England built up its navy, the reconstruction of London, after the Great Fire of London in 1666, and the making of barrel staves, many of which were exported to France and Spain as wine casks. In 1608, Philip Cottingham first surveys Ireland on behalf of the English crown, and again in 1623. His report states that the country is abounding in timber, mainly noble oak, fit for shipbuilding. However, he notes that they were instead being used, contrary to law, to make staves for barrels. Meanwhile, in the 1780s, Richard Woodward, Bishop of Cloyne, wondered how a foreigner could possibly conceive that half the inhabitants are dying of hunger in a country so abundant in foodstuffs. The weather-related famine of 1740-41 to caused the death of a third of the population in some areas. Despite this, the population has increased from about 2.5 million in 1700 to 5 million in 1800. Irish trade was stifled by the Navigation Acts, 
which limited Irish exports. These were repealed in 1779 due to pressure from the Irish Patriot Party and fostered a brief boom in the 1780s. Under pressure from salted meat exported from the Baltic and from the United States, the Anglo-Irish landowners rapidly switched to growing grain for export, while most Irish ate potatoes and growths or edible plants. In Dublin, the Royal Exchange was built in 1769, and in 1781, a new custom house was started. Hush a hush and listen, and his cheeks were all aglow. I bear orders from the captain, get you ready quick and soon. For the pikes must be together by the rising of the moon. By the rising of the moon The pikes must be together By the rising of the moon They nailed me Sean O'Farrell Where the gathering is to be In that old spot by the river That's well known to you and me One more word for signal token Whilst up the marching tune Put your pikes upon your shoulder by the rising of the moon. By the rising of the moon, by the rising of the moon. Put your pikes upon your shoulder by the rising of the moon. Out from many a mud walled cabin, eyes were looking through the night. Many a manly heart was throbbing. For that lonely warning light Murmurs moved along the valley Like the banshee's croning moon And the thousand pikes were flashing By the rising of the moon By the rising of the moon By the rising of the moon A thousand pikes were flashing By the rising of the moon that shimmering water that great mass of men were seen and above their shining armor hung their own beloved green that to every foe and traitor onward strike the marching tune and array me boys for freedom tis the rising of the moon the rising of the moon the rising For freedom, tis the rising of the moon. At the rising of the moon, the rising of the moon. And the rainy boys for freedom, tis the rising of the moon.